Hey, this is Kamil. You're listening to the Marketing on Podcast. In today's episode, we talk about SEO, top of funnel content, bottom of the funnel content, backlinks, and Google algorithm updates. And also, we touch upon lifetime value versus payback period. I hope you enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, please tell someone about it. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Okay. Uh, hello. My name is Asia Matos. I am the CEO and founder of Demand Maven. I work with early stage startups and founders on their go-to-market strategy. Oh, uh, my name is Jess. <laughs> Jess Jessica Joyce. I'm a now freelance marketer in Toronto, uh, mostly on the technical side. So. Um, people build things as much as I can um, and uh, do marketing and SEO, very SEO heavy. And I'm Camille, I'm the host. And uh, I know Jess because we have a mutual friend and I know Asia because we have a mutual friend. So, <laughs> so yeah, so thanks for coming on. Uh, really excited to get this going. Uh, this was, uh, so we don't have to talk about just SEO. I know there's a lot of things in, there's a bunch of things in here. So I want to kick things off by talking about internal linking. Uh, it's come up now and then where I still see on Twitter, I still see on LinkedIn, people are, or I'll actually go to websites and people are linking like from their homepage, they'll link their blog with the UTM and stuff. And maybe just talk about why it's a bad idea, why not do it, why do why are people such idiots that they still do it? And Jess, you want to kick things off? Uh sure. Uh, well, UTMs weren't created to use on your own website. That's never been the the idea and the purpose of them. Um, I think just as the as that little piece of tech has gone, it's just been been used more and more in that way. Um, it's meant to be for like sharing social and, and uh, for tracking your links back to your website um, in, a, in an effective way in a, in a campaigns and mediums. And um, what's there's a third one that's always with that. Anyway, um, it's, it's just meant to be able to mar- track your marketing campaigns. But uh, anything within your own website, uh, you can track with Google Analytics just organically anyway, the way that it's built. Um, yeah. And if you actually do end up using UTMs, it'll end up double counting. The information so you're actually kiboshing your own analytics <laughs> by implementing that on your own website and it's like it's amazing how it's in this day and age people still do it and i just think it's like some people are obsessed with tracking maybe everything and they think it's a good idea to tag every single url even within their home page and whatever but yeah it's yeah, it just blows my mind Agreed, but there's always a better way to do that. You can always use events um, or different parameters that are that are much more effective. Um, Talk more and, about events. Uh, you can always fire. Uh, Google Analytics has like event tracking, mm-hmm. so you can actually um, just put a little bit of JavaScript in your in your code that would actually end up firing an event anytime somebody clicks any of your internal links on a specific. Page. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, which would be a much more effective way to be able to track that than using a UTM. It would just be in a different set of the reporting in GA. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's helpful. I actually didn't know you could. That makes sense. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Aj, do you have anything to add on this? Should we? I don't. I uh, I from like a tactical perspective, I am definitely uh, not the guru here. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, I think that these are all obviously really poignant things to discuss. It matters. So I'm going to jump a little bit and go to the tofu, bofu stuff. So talking about starting with the bofu acquisition strategy rather than tofu. And Asia, you tweeted about that. Uh, would love some more context where, well, not naming names, but, you know, like, <laughs> don't want don't to name names, but where it came from, what, what started that conversation, how you look at things and, you know. Yeah. I, I, I have so many conversations with founders, um, pretty much every single day and every single week and it never fails. It always comes up with, well, how, like what, what kind of marketing campaigns and strategies should I be implementing? And, um, I always say, depending on your business, uh, starting with sales is always like, it's, it's truly the most binary way to know if people are going to buy what you have or not. Uh, the answer is usually either yes or no, or it's um, not right now. Um, so the next step above that, from a marketing perspective, if sales or even if um, e- whether that's like an actual physical human being, like running a demo for you, or sales as in someone's putting in their credit card, uh, still a sales process. Um, the step above that is naturally bottom of the funnel marketing activity, and what I mean by that is the most intent driven pain relieving activity that you can possibly be doing um, from a marketing perspective. And of course, attracting people at that stage. Um, Everyone always wants to start at the top of the funnel, but what I think is, and what I, and and top of the funnel, meaning they want to start with like the big visionary marketing activity. Um, Maybe that's events or conferences, or maybe that's driving awareness campaigns. But typically what ends up happening is you end up attracting people who you don't really know or understand, and you don't really understand what's driving their buying decisions, um, or even if they're even good fits from the get-go. And mm-hmm. you're basically playing a guessing game top-down as opposed to just starting from the bottom of the funnel and then expanding from there. Um, it, it, it still blows my mind how often and how common it is to, to um, be talking to someone who uh, it's like, yeah, like we've got, you know, like our first 10, 15 customers. Um, but now we're thinking about marketing and it's like, okay, well, cool. Well, what marketing activities are you thinking about leveraging? And it's like, let's just do Facebook. And it's like, <laughs> I think Facebook is a great channel. Don't get me wrong. I leverage it in many of my, um, I leverage it in pretty much all of my uh, client engagements in some form or fashion. Uh, it's just one of those platforms that in many ways you can't kind of get away from. But Facebook is a push channel. People aren't looking for solutions to pain. Um, but search, AdWords, things like that, people are actively looking for solutions to pain. Captera even. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of very bottom of the funnel channels that you can immediately tap into and see how well does your marketing funnel actually work when people go to your website? Do they book the demo? Do they sign up for the free trial? Do they opt in? Do they create a freemium account? Whatever so it more, is. More intent-driven. So they're like in the buying they're like oh i need something now right out there versus being like hey let's get like ten thousand people to the site but do you think that's yeah. part of it is like vanity where they're like oh my website's not getting traffic let me just get a ton of site traffic just because it looks good yes and i think and i and and i've seen this also too where um it's it's almost kind of like, it's like a virus in a way. It's like one founder's like, well, you know, we started driving a ton of traffic to the website and like, that's what gave us all the conversions. Um, but I, I argue that it's not as efficient and especially mm-hmm. depending on your market and your model, it's expensive. 
uh, it's expensive to get traffic, um, especially in the early days. And if it's not expensive, I mean, it's scope time budget. It's going to either take you time or the scope is going to have to change or you're going to have to pay some money and just depending on what those levers are and um, really, really tough to get traffic. But that said, yes, it's, I think it's kind of, uh, it is kind of like an infection where it's like uh, everyone thinks that they need to immediately jump into traffic as soon as they start getting their first paying mm -hmm. customers. But I actually think it should be the opposite. You should focus on expanding the amount of customers that you have, but mm -hmm. not necessarily through traffic first. Um, Cause you ultimately don't really know what's going to convert or what's, and you also, that's the thing too, is like, you don't know who they are until they convert. So if you get a bunch of traffic yeah. to the site, it's like, most of that's probably garbage and you just have no idea until they actually sign up and then churn. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <is> that too. <laughs> yeah. And it sort of, to me, it also ties into like, uh, when you first start something, you're selling one-to-one -one, and then your natural indication is, oh, this thing is working. Let me just get like 10,000 people to the site and they're going to buy this thing right away. And then Jess, I would love your input on, because this sort of relates to SEO in a tangential way. Because when you talk about top of the funnel, it's all SEO related. I know you're not like an SEO, SEO person where you buy, you know, you get people traffic, but I would love you take on it too. No, but everything in SEO goes directly to what Asia was saying, right? Like it's intent and meeting, meeting that intent and making sure that people match up with, um, with what you're selling instead of just throwing traffic at it, like exactly what she was saying. So everything, the search world goes the exact same way. Okay. So would you say that? Even in SEO, like you don't do SEO traditional, like you do more technical SEO, but you would also, if you were to do something like this, you would map intent to traffic versus just doing top of the funnel. This word keyword has like 10,000 searches a month. Let's just start <laughs> start writing it. Yeah, exactly. And and some of the most undervalued stuff in keyword research and doing that kind of stuff is actually just looking at the SERP and seeing what shows up. Can you just explain what SERP is for people? Oh, sorry. Is the search engine ranking page. So actually yeah. like doing those searches in your area or the area of your desired customer, mm -hmm. uh, seeing what shows up in that. And if, if the things that show up are all like e-commerce things, but you're um, just an informational site, then odds are you're not going to match that intent as well. Oh, as that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So super undervalued. I, that's something I do in my keyword research at any point is just look for things because it, it, it should match the buying cycle. Like Asia was saying is uh, there's top of the funnel keywords and mid funnel keywords and bottom of the funnel keywords and transactional keywords. So matching those directly and putting them in and aligning them is super important. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. Actually, I, I don't check the same pages at all, so I should probably start doing that. <laughs> I actually do that, and I completely agree with Jess. It is usually, it's very eye-opening from like a search strategy. So something that I do um, is I do exactly what Jess just described. And also, um, and the reason why I end up looking up keywords and like, you know, opening up Ahrefs and like, or maybe it's Ahrefs, I don't know how they say it. But um, the reason why is I end up... I don't know. Like, how we need to ask Tim. Like, how do you say the company? I thought it was he, uh, I was at a conference a month ago with them, and they don't care. Okay, <laughs> yeah. it's like as long as you're talking about us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, but Tim's from uh, Tim has an accent, so the way he says it is different than the way that we would say it too. So I think he's just happy if you say like Ahrefs or Ahrefs. <laughs> okay, Ahrefs. All right. Well, yeah. However, well, however you say it, whatever your preference is. Um, <laughs> So I typically what ends up happening is uh, when I'm analyzing what does bottom of the funnel marketing activity actually look like, I'm almost always starting with search. 
Um, Because when someone has a pain, they're going to Google it. They're going to pop open a search bar and like look for solutions to pain. And um, that's almost always where I start first. And part of that too is when I'm thinking about, okay, what does demand gen ultimately look like for this this company? Um, And what do the very first campaigns look like? I'm usually thinking about keywords first um, and seeing... Is there a very clear correlation between the keywords that these companies can very clearly not only pay for traffic for, but maybe over time potentially rank for um, in the long term? But then there's also, uh, and then of course, if there's not a clear correlation, then it's like, okay, well, then what can I unearth? What, like, okay, like, let's scrap this. What else is there? And and a lot of that comes from client interviews, customer interviews as well. Mm -hmm. Almost all of that. like it's not, you know, it's, <laughs> I joke all the time. It's really not rocket science. It's just, it's very, uh, it's, if anything, it's more like mathematical, but the art to it, I guess, is um, listening for what people are saying about the product too. Like how do they describe it? Um, is the difference between like using the word program versus software because yeah. everyone yeah. says program. So like, cool, can we rank for that? <laughs> or, you know, what have you, like the, whatever yeah. the, the piece is there, but. Yeah, what's interesting is that a lot of times I find companies have a certain way of saying what they do and that doesn't really match what people say what they do. And then you're just like, they're in this own bubble and they're trying to force people to say this thing and people are like, no, 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 what you do is this and this is what we think you are. And they just, yeah, it's a, yeah, that's an interesting point. So I want to talk a little bit about, well, this is, this is an old topic, but subdomains versus subdirectories. <laughs> because it comes up now and then every so often. I know you guys have opinions on it. I know you guys have read about it. I know you've seen some angry tweets about it. Where do you stand on this debate? Um, well, uh, the official uh, the official word that I've heard is subdomains um, are considered a separate domain as opposed to like a subfolder. So okay. uh, keeping everything on your domain as opposed to a subdomain uh, is kind of the ideal situation if you can get there, but there's always like, it depends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so, like, uh, there's, there's always edge cases and wacky situations that you end up in and, and technological corners that you end up in that, uh, that would, that would change the hand and change the way that the, the hand that you're dealt or the technical section that you're working with. I mean, to me, what's interesting is that HubSpot's uh, blogging tool is on a subdomain and their entire blog is on a subdomain and they have great search. So. <laughs> you know, I think, I think it's interesting because I, uh, anytime I work, I, I think the earlier stage that you are, I think the more it makes sense to have everything on your main domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I will say that, yes, like there are totally edge cases. But the other thing that's interesting about a lot of these edge cases is that they're often first. Like, when you think about HubSpot, HubSpot's been around for how many years now? Um, they've, in many ways, been able to they've been able to build the brand that um, you know everyone wants to aspire to uh, in terms of like growth and just overall visibility and awareness. Um, few people don't know what HubSpot is in our world, at least. But when I think about what it would mean for an early stage startup to attempt something similar, unless they just have amazing internal SEO skill and know-how mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and also if if that's going to be the strategy that they're going to double down on maybe it makes sense um 
but I almost never, I find myself never recommending it, especially in the early days. It just makes way more sense to build a brand around your actual domain and then use subfolders than anything yeah. else. And that's more, and that's, and, and maybe that is something that changes over the years. Um, so longevity wise, maybe there's an edge case for like, you know, changing things and breaking all the rules, putting that in finger quotes for people listening. Um, but, <laughs> but that said, yeah, I, at least in the beginning, I almost never recommend it from a subdomain perspective. I never recommend subdomains, um, but I can see how it can help long-term for sure. Yeah. What's interesting, there was this, and I t- like when Medium started rolling out custom domains, a lot of people, a lot of companies actually moved their blogs to Medium. And I believe that was a subdomain. So like there was, even though there's this whole debate in the SEO world about subdomains and subfolders, a lot of the tools are like, we don't really care. We're going to give domain and like, yeah. We're okay with it. <laughs> yeah. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Netlify is a tool that can kind of help with um, creating subfolders and doing a lot of the really cool things that you can do um, from an SEO perspective, things that I am not, I'm obviously like not a, an engineer, even like a real SEO, but um, there are things out there that can kind of help from what I understand, at least. Jess, any inputs on that? Uh, I haven't used Netlify, but I'm currently Googling it now. So <laughs> it's <laughs> what, what does the SERP say though? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All in one platform for automating modern web projects. Yeah. Okay. So that definitely could be helpful. You get a CDN continuous deployment, one click HTTPS. Yeah. All the like base stuff that you would need that Asia was referring to, like out of yeah. the game. And like for from my experience, even working at startups, like if you do implement something that's on a subdomain, then uh it's harder to get out of that stuff the bigger you get too. And people just get used to having that there. So, so uh, like migrating from a subdomain to a subfolder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, or just like people get used to. I think like, it might just be people get used to it. I've worked at two companies that, well, one company that definitely did have subdomains um, and people just left them for years and years and years and years and years. So, uh, and it didn't matter how big they got, but it was the biggest question that people would always ask. Can I make it a subfolder instead of a subdomain? That's all that people wanted to do. Interesting. Huh. Well, Uberflip has the same thing, right? Like Uberflip yeah, is also... Oh, yeah. 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 A lot of these external blogging tools, like in, unless you're using WordPress and your entire site is on WordPress or yeah. something, then I think you end up with a subdomain because that's the only... I, I'm not sure why, but maybe that's the only way you can hook up to a... Because it's, again, it's a separate domain kind of a thing. So makes totally. sense. I, I and it's it's I find it really interesting that it's a lot of content providers that are doing that that provide the subdomains when it's like that's the content that you care about on your actual domain. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but then some of them do it really well. Like um, Ghost is a CMS that you can yep. just incorporate into a folder structure on your website easily, and they actually prefer doing it that way. And it's an external CMS, so you you don't host it yourself. Yeah, you can host it. Well, uh, that's if you're self-hosted. If you're hosting it and uploading it, Got like, it. Yeah. your own stuff, then it's free and you can just run it off a, a subfolder and then it's good to go. I think you can also do it um, uh, if it's hosted by them, but you pay a fee to have... Oh, that's an interesting business model. Yeah. For people who care about that stuff, they're willing to pay for that. Yeah, for sure. That's true. And then they do all the monitoring of the servers and such, so it's, it rules. Oh, got it. So it's a managed service, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Jess, you wanted to touch upon 
rendering service for JavaScript by Google and would love some more background on it. So like, why doesn't Google, so what does it mean? Why does, why should we care? Just like, you know, talk to us like, we're, well, I'm an idiot about it. So like, yeah, just go basic. <laughs> so um, the way that Google indexes web pages is it does it in a two-stage process. Uh, it does, it indexes your HTML first. Um, that's like the first pass that it does. And then it comes back and does all your JavaScript. But there's no time that's uh, like set between those two renderings. So it could be days, it could be weeks between those two separate indexing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which is where it kind of all falls down, right? Like if you have a very JavaScript heavy site that's spitting out things and not by JavaScript, yeah. that stuff could take so much longer for it to get indexed. Got it. Whereas, like, there's all this stuff coming out if you're doing pre-rendering um, and all these other very What's pre-rendering. Pre-rendering is uh, making sure that all your code gets rendered um, as HTML, um, and then that's just will get rendered on the first. It'll get into so the JavaScript spits out HTML. Yeah, so it's like okay. a lot of those. Uh, um, and from what I understand, I'm not like a super React dev or anything. I'm trying to learn myself. <laughs> is, um, is there's all kinds of modules in every single JavaScript framework that you can put in to do all these things, um, and modules to put in for SEO too. So um, I was watching a wonderful webinar that was put on by. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm totally gonna forget who it was, but they had um, one of the guys from Google who's um, working on JavaScript for Google, and he was saying that the rendering service is actually being updated by Google currently, but there okay. isn't a timeline on when that will happen. Oh, deep crawl. So if you're interested, there was a wonderful webinar this week put on by deep crawl about making JavaScript work, work with search. This is the week of March 15th. I don't know how, yes. when I'm going to release this episode. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> it might be two weeks from now. <laughs> yeah, so Google, uh, just Google like deep crawl webinar, JavaScript and SEO. It was fantastic. He went through um, super technical things like rendering and the kinds of rendering that you do um, and why search works this way and the kinds of things that you can do with JavaScript frameworks in order to ensure that they're more indexable. Got it. So would that mean that the JavaScript wouldn't need to spit out HTML? It would just crawl, and this might sound like an idiotic question, but it would just crawl the JavaScript itself? Yeah, sometimes it does. Like I'm working with a client now who... Um, their JavaScript, when it um, gets rendered, is actually rendering three body tags and three HTML tags. Um, so it's just improper. That's dangerous, yeah. Yeah, it's just improper HTML. And Google's like stops is at the first one. So yeah. <laughs> it's not. So it won't even capture for SEO purposes, it won't even read the second or third. Yeah. Okay. So they're kind of kiboshing the amount of information that they can get indexed by having that. That. Got it. Yeah. Oh, and a piece to know is uh, this rendering service is getting updated because Google crawls JavaScript like Chrome 41. So it's running, um, it's running services like, what is it, 30 versions behind um, the actual Chrome that we're all running now, too. I'm on Firefox for the record. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. No, that's because, so the reason I wanted to bring this up was one, uh i like one is there's there's always this debate about what like so a lot of tech startups are funded by deaf people and they like to build even static websites in <laughs> react or something 
So it's good to know that, you know, Google actually doesn't render JavaScript that well. And the second yeah. thing was that I just like, I think this might be an interesting topic for a lot of people. So it's... Um, yeah. And all the big frameworks have ways to do this yeah. out of the box. Um, it's just, I think you have to add a, a separate module or um, separate little pieces that you can pull in from React and Angular are the two big ones. And then I think uh, he was talking a little bit about Vue um, coming up, which... Uh, which also has amazing things and that I've seen work on a yep. on work that I've worked with Asia on. So there is like things that you can do to ensure that things are rendering and crawling properly. Yep. And the second, the oh, it's also interesting how dev, so a lot of, I don't know if just you and I talked about it or Asia and I talked about it, but like SEO is, uh, a lot of people look at SEO as a purely content play, but then there's all this whole underbelly of technical stuff that goes into it. And a lot of people don't even think about it. They're like, when they, people think SEO, it's like keyword research, write a ton of content about that, build a pillar page, you know, this and that. But they don't talk about like, if your website is not being rendered by Google or it's not indexed by Google, then like none of this even matters. So it's it's good to see both sides of it. Oh, totally. And I'm starting to see that myself because I never came from that world. I didn't come from the content world at all. Like I came from a dev world before I even started this. Um, so I never really even saw the content side. Like I used to work with journalists and have the highest respect for people who can write on that level because I can't do that. <laughs> um, I try, but journalists are, are just a whole different, wonderful level of a writer. So uh, yeah. I just see the technical side of things and see how rendering and, and, and how your code works. Because like yeah. even 30 years into the web, we're still just indexing HTML at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, yeah. And Asia comes. Asia and I come from the other side of the world, where we're more, you know, co- not content, but yeah, like the other side of the equation. So it's interesting to just. Asia, do you have anything to add on SEO rendering? Seeing the flip side of the funnel, not the funnel, the coin. <laughs> I don't know why I said funnel. I I do not, um, and probably because I'm not. I'm just not like digging into that level. But I will say um, one thing I have learned though is caring about caring about how it's rendering and caring about how Google actually sees you. Um, I, I know enough to know that it, it matters a lot. Uh, and it's something that if, if, if it's possible to prioritize early, um, then awesome. Uh, cause what totally sucks is when you've got hundreds and hundreds of pages and you kind of realize that Google doesn't give a crap about it because nothing <laughs> is structured properly. So, um, and all of this, you know, great, amazing SEO work. Um, some of it might be, kind of a fluke, but just because like you just got really lucky in some cases, but you've got a ton of content that, uh, because everything's not structured right. Um, and, and I've seen this a lot too. Um, uh, you know, not throwing anyone under the bus, of course, but, um, I see a lot of agencies working with startups who have no idea that they're actually wrapping like their H1s and P tags. Mm. Um, just like small, small things like that. Things that seem like really, really obvious to us. Um, even what do you mean by wrapping H1 and P tags. Yeah, so they might uh, they might typical pra- uh, practice is to build like a WordPress template, but mm-hmm. because of the way that they've built it, um, you you as the editor might think that or like the content editor or manager, you might think you're using an H1, but because of the way that the template was built, something happened from like a data perspective, and now it's looks like it's a H1, but it's actually being wrapped in a P tag, or it's actually not even an H1 at all. It just is a P tag. Yeah. Um, and like the, the font has just changed size, but it's not an actual, 
uh, I, I, I see that happen all the time. And, um, as a marketer, it's just kind of like, Oh, so cool. My H ones are useless. Great. Uh, but then, you know, uh, from a search perspective that could just <laughs> it absolutely will kill you. So it's like, uh, but it's not something that a lot of founders, especially non-technical ones know to check uh, mm-hmm. the, the work that they're getting. Like if you're getting a website built by an agency, um, but they're not building the template in the way that's going to help you. Mm-hmm. That could, I mean, it's, it's yeah. Foundation isn't right. Yeah. It sucks. Oh, it totally sucks. And then you have to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all a lot of technical debt to go back and like redo all that stuff for sure. It is sadly common. Um, It's usually one of the very first things that I check when I start working with a company. So interesting. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good. I I love this uh, discussion from both sides of the perspective of like the technical person, the non-technical person, and just you know how it all comes together. AJ, I wanted to touch upon a little bit of what you tweeted recently about LTV versus payback period. Well, actually, it was more about LTV, and then some people replied, you should look at payback periods. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that. Like, I don't know. I, I had to wrap my head around what payback periods are, and I would love to get your perspective on what drove that conversation. Like, what, where were you? Not, like, again, not naming names, but, like, where it came from and what yeah. made you think about it and, like, where you ended up going with that. Yeah. It's probably one of the most common questions that I get both from my clients and then also just people who I talk to. Um, and it's also something that comes up even whether you're bootstrapped or you're going after VC funds, um, you're going after funding at least it, it, it almost always comes up of like, uh, either when should I start measuring LTV to CAC or, um, sometimes they'll, you know, they'll bring me on and they're, and they'll say, well, we really want like a really good LTV to CAC ratio. And um, so, so, much of, so much of me says, well, yes, we want to start measuring it, but it's not going to be pretty or good, mm-hmm. especially in the first, I would say even six months to a year of your existence as a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's usually a gross number. And Jason Lumpkin has talked about this um, over the years and has basically just said like, you're probably going to break even like in the first year, if that. Uh, it's going to cost a lot to acquire um, but over time, if you're building the right marketing engine, it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time until it's almost something like super crazy. And, um, like revenue per user is just like insane, um, in theory. <laughs> uh, but in practice, um, yeah, honestly, it was just kind of like, a. I definitely have my opinions, but I was very curious. What, what does everyone else think? When are they measuring these things? Um, and that was when I was introduced to the concept of payback period, which is something that uh, it's not a KPI or a metric that I am checking often. But anytime I run campaigns, I'm always thinking about, well, payback period is essentially, if I'm not mistaken, it is the, uh, it is the time it takes to make your money back after you've spent a certain amount uh, you know, attempting yeah. to acquire. Yeah. So if you spend $100 on an AdWords campaign, you generated, let's say, three paying customers. Um, how long before you recuperate that $100 spend? How long would you need to keep them? So is that a one month? Is that, that six months? Is that 10? Um, so payback period is something that uh, when I worked primarily in events and conferences, um, e- events and conferences are always a huge dollar amount. Um, sometimes, especially if you're going to like Dreamforce, could be like 100K just to go to Dreamforce. But if you look at the payback period on Dreamforce, uh, that might, and depending on your ACV and your model and all that other fun stuff, you might see that money come back in six months. Um, mm-hmm. So payback period doesn't seem so crazy. Uh, and spending that much doesn't seem so crazy either, especially if you 
have an LTV of like, you know, X dollars, that's way more than what you spent. So, um, but payback period is pretty interesting. And it was something that I hadn't really considered at this stage, especially since LTV to CAC, just like I said, it's just, it's gross. It's a really gross number. Um, you end up spending way more to acquire than uh, however many people actually stay with your product, unless your churn's low. Now I will say that in the, if you're pre-product market fit, you've probably got a higher churn than you'd like, or um, just a lower conversion into being a paid customer. Um, so I find that <laughs> LTV is just a depressing number, unless of course you have a pretty good customer base, you have a pretty good understanding of product market fit, and it's just a matter of traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, yeah, so so it all it almost always comes up. Uh, and usually it's usually when I come on to a client engagement, they've never done really anything marketing wise and they have mm-hmm. no idea what it looks like to create a marketing engine. In which mm-hmm. case I always prepare them and I'm like, we can measure this, um, but it's gonna be sad and it's not gonna get better for a while. <laughs> but at, do you do you find that at yours uh like not yours? your clients, but like in general, the early stage startups, they don't even know what their lifetime, like how long the customer sticks around for. So they might be around for five years. Like, I don't like the company hasn't been existence for five years. So they don't really know what, how long a customer sticks around for. And it might be like six months or a year or five years or two years or three years. Oftentimes I'm working with companies that are like in the one to two year mark. They might've had a different product that they've pivoted uh, to, and now they're going to market with this new version of the product. Um, but yes, I completely agree. Oftentimes, um, especially if they don't know who their best fit customers are, mm-hmm. they have no idea how long that, that customer segment or persona, um, would last anyway. So oftentimes we'll, you know, just from like a monthly perspective, you might see, you might be able to hold on to a certain segment of customers from, for like three to six months. And if you're mm-hmm. in that bucket, well, then your lifetime value is probably way low. Um, and it's going to take longer to get a better understanding of, well, where are your customers today? Mm-hmm. Um, and who are the best fit ones? Are there any outliers? Um, or do you have a pretty good handle on your customers? Uh, you have a pretty good segment you've either niched or you're solving some very real pain for some very specific people. Um, and you're seeing, you know, longer and longer life cycles. I think that that's kind of where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But at the same exact time, I totally understand where, uh, especially if you have a VC to answer to, where it's like, well, what's your, you know, LTV to CAC? And so, uh, well, the number's sad. So um, I usually <laughs> just prepare people for that. But sometimes though, um, oh, this was one of the caveat, I guess I would add to that. Um, B2C is very interesting. So I primarily, I work almost exclusively with early stage startups. But what I, I also work with, they could be either B2B or B2C. Now I will say B2C is very interesting because you can actually calculate it pretty quickly. Um, You might not have the full understanding of the life cycle, but because B2C does, in my mind, in my experience, it does scale a little bit faster. To me, it just moves faster from a marketing perspective. Um, If you've got a pretty good, even if you're not like pure product market fit, uh, even if you're a little bit close to it, uh, I find that LTV to CAC does actually make sense to calculate. Um, we kind of ran this experiment with one of my BSC clients, actually, because I was curious too. Uh, and it ended up actually giving us a pretty accurate number. Um, some, something that I could actually stand by and say like, okay, th- we, can, we can work with this. Uh, but B2B, it's usually like, this is, this is not going to be pretty and I just want to prepare everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. In the beginning. Uh, but give it six months to a year of maturity, not only of, you know, in your business, but then also marketing. Marketing needs time to mature too. The market needs to mature too. 
um, the market will never move as fast as you. Like that's just the reality. So it does take time to start seeing numbers that make sense. Yeah, I remember doing this for a B2C startup like a couple of years ago. And the big challenge for us was there's a frequency element tied to it. So people might not use the product for six months and then they come back again. So how do you, what, do you tie to frequency? Do you tie to like how, if they didn't cancel their account, do you count them as an active user? So there's all these other things that come to it. I will say this though, like Intercom has actually a really good, I've seen their Facebook ads about this. They have a ebook or something about payback periods, which uh, I would recommend anybody <laughs> listening, curious, check it out. It's really interesting. So uh, we're running out of topics. So I'm going to throw one towards Jess and state of the SEO industry, because I know this is a hot topic in general. I mean, I am in a lot of Facebook groups where there's like, I'm in some Facebook ads, Facebook groups, and I question my existence in terms of like the kind of stuff I see there. And I'm sure you've, you were in the SEO circles and there's a bit of a, not that it's like, I don't know to what degree it's true, but there's a bit of a sketchy persona that wraps around it. So a lot of people like talk about SEOs and they're like, uh, I don't know if I trust those people. Uh, why do they have that reputation? Is that actually true? As an SEO yourself, like, what do you see? Um, so I'm in a, in a ton of groups. Um, I When I quit my full-time job about a year ago, about nine months ago, I think it is now, uh, I felt like I needed to be in every single group that was possible. So I joined about probably like half a dozen Facebook groups and I'm in probably like three or four Slack groups and, and, and uh, SEO Twitter. But SEO Twitter is my favorite place to be. <laughs> SEO Twitter is very ent- entertaining. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I have seemed to have uh, found uh, like a nice little corner of the, the web that has SEO Twitter that um, is, is equally smart and challenging um, and also a little bitter and a little cynical, but that it's, that's comes with it. Um, that's like marketing Twitter in general. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, uh, I feel like that's where, where a lot of the meat comes out of. Um, people are always asking me, where do, where do you learn about SEO? And I say Twitter and then they go, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I found it's, it's an amazing place to, to find that. Um, but a lot of those, uh, uh, there are some people who are rough around the edges that could come off as like, uh, as scammy or, um, or negative in some sort of way. So I could see how the industry still has kind of that connotation to it, but uh, it definitely isn't. Um, it, it also has a, a, a high level of learning to it, but so does a lot of industries. Mm-hmm. It's just, I feel like in SEO, people like talk a lot of words that don't make any sense to people coming out of your mouth. Normal like, people, yeah. Yeah, like you could say SERPs and and people are like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but, um it just takes a it takes a bunch of learning, and then if you're trying to talk to somebody about something like link building, that's yep. uh, a whole different thing in itself. And that uh, those conversations can go really bad, or they can go really well. Like it depends on your marketing and your and your brand and your strategy, and if that if that ends up being part of your strategy. Um, but linking can also be really messy too. So um, that can also be really. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about link building and just. So I always thought of link building as like people read your stuff and they're like, oh, this is good. I'm going to link to it. But then there's this whole, not aggressive, but like proactive link building where you actually email people to link back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Is and that, that's, uh, and that's uh, an and industry I, on its own kind of a thing. 
it definitely is. And I've seen a, uh, um, it's become kind of a, a very, very uh, bloated, I feel like at the moment, but that just might be my perspective of the I agree. Yeah. industry. Um, but I've seen, I've seen a lot of journalists, especially get very um, offended, honestly. And their inboxes are filled with people who are just like, Filling out a Neil uh, Patel template of like this is <laughs> put my link here and do this. Okay, bye. <laughs> you know, and it's uh, but it, it's it's not about that at all. I saw a presentation like a month ago of this wonderful uh, company in Toronto called Vengage, uh, yep. and Nadia, and she was saying that her content team runs completely differently. And this has kind of changed my m- way of thinking about it. Is everyone who writes something for her um, ends up thinking about 10 people that they want to link to uh, immediately before they publish the post. Have them link to them or they yeah, want? Yeah, so they, okay. uh, like, just as, like, a seed of, like, oh, it'd be great to get a link from these people because right. they know what we're writing about. Right. Or, um, they would be a great connection because it fits topically. So uh, they end up contacting them through the writing process so that by the time they end up launching whatever content piece it is, they've already got some fodder going yeah. for each article that they're writing and i feel like that's more of like a holistic and combined way of doing things instead of thinking of link building as an afterthought yeah yeah and i just think it's also based on relationships to be honest like i i get emails for links and i'm like i don't even (laughs) like why are you emailing me (laughs) if i link to you it's not gonna do anything for you but yeah i just feel like if you have relationships with people you sort of say, oh, I saw that you're writing about this. I just wrote about this. Do you mind like we link to each other or something? I, I know you sort of don't live in this world, but you are exposed to it a lot. I would love your take on it too. Oh, gosh. Uh, link building, if I'm not mistaken, is one of those... Uh, uh, it's one of those things where like you like send out the email to like the person like who's publishing the post. Yep. Like, Can you please link to this? Cause like, you know, update it, that kind of thing. Like we're, I'm helping you. Um, I've, I've never, I have not had the most success with that. Maybe I'm sure any SEO gurus out there listening are probably like, what you're doing it wrong. Um, and talking to even people who have, um, marketers who have like in, insane amounts of like just search engine experience and like know exactly what to do. Even they kind of say like, this isn't the most effective way, but at the same exact time, I don't know. I, I don't have strong opinions on it. I just know that, um, the manual outreach seems, seems kind of like it, it's flooded and wondering. Yes, extremely. Uh, yeah. and, but Honestly, it just seems like the best links that you can possibly earn are going to be the ones that are organic because people actually liked what you did. Yeah, I don't know. So that's yeah. that's kind of where. Um, uh, now, how do you break through the noise? Different conversations. That's, yeah, yeah, and that's well, not maybe not on this. We're already fifty-three minutes, but I love to like. One of the big challenges for me is when I talk to people about like I don't do content at all, but like people who do content, I'm like, have you thought about distribution? And they rarely ever do. And that's, to me, that's one of the, like, again, going back to your point about organic link building is like, if people don't know what you wrote, then how are they going to link to you kind of a thing? So I think that's why people rely on the spamminess. And a lot of times it's like outsourced agencies who specialize, quote unquote, in link building, which just means they blast out emails to everybody. So, yeah. There's there's a tweet that um, Benji Hyam uh, from Grow and Convert, whom I really admire and respect uh, when it comes to especially this kind of stuff. And I, I want to say that he tweeted about this, but um, 
uh, it was either him or um, Jimmy Daly from Animals. One of them tweeted, if I'm not mistaken, at least, uh, that he's basically just like no amount of um, growth hacking, putting that in finger quotes, growth hacking, the whole outreach process is going to be effective when it's very clear, like you didn't read the blog post, you have no idea what this is talking about. Um, and it's just very clear and, and no, especially in this industry, uh, it's just very clear whenever people try to, they don't really care about actually building the relationship. Um, so I think, I think that kind of authenticity is something that's kind of missing from that whole process that, uh, now to be fair, I know it does work in some cases. Uh, I just, I haven't seen it personally, but, um, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, marketers are jaded anyway. So like, I know we yeah. are, and we hate being sold to, and yet that's kind of what we do. We and, we, and... we eat up stuff, though. We chase after shiny objects all the time. So it's true. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so Jess, I have a quick last question for you: Is Google doing an algorithm update? Uh they did one this week. Okay, uh, can you just give us a brief? I know it might be like highly technical and a go over um, our heads, but well, it's it's super new, so nobody really has any actual information. Like it's only been like seventy two hours or something. So um, I think it's, in my opinion, anyway. This is just my opinion. Yeah, like, that's what this is. This is people's yeah. opinions. So. Um, is uh, I think it's too early to kind of be like, oh, well, it, this got affected and this got affected. You know, I think it's a. Uh, I think we'll have to wait and see, but. Google came back and actually did say it's a core algorithm update and they just said it's like a March update. So that's all they're going to name it. Okay. Um, but then the SEO journalists got into it and just started doing uh, Twitter polls about like, what are we going to name this update? <laughs> <laughs> um, which I found pretty funny. <laughs> uh, and and for the first time, I actually saw Google come out the next day and be like, nope, guys, it's just a core update. Like, just- so what is a core update? Like they're not really changing how they index or do certain things. It's just a core. To the yeah, it's core. It, uh, it was the same thing as, as uh, last June, which um, which got named as like the medic update. But that was actually just a core update as well. Okay. Um, it, uh, it just, a lot of the attribution towards it tended to lend towards medical sites. Okay. Uh, somebody named it a medic update. Um, but that gives it a false attribution because now Genius people thing. are like, oh, I have a medical site and my traffic went down. And oh, that's, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is fair unless somebody who actually knows what they're talking about can go in and look at the data. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Uh, yeah. Anything else anybody wants to touch upon? It's open open mic season. If you want to give out a shout out to anybody, if you want to rant about something, this is your time. Otherwise, we'll wrap things. I see some faces, but I'm not sure if anybody wants to say anything now. Okay, we're going to call it a day. Ranty today, sorry. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, I thought I was expecting you were going to go on a rant, but you didn't. But it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, it, you know what? It always happens like on Twitter. It's either like at five in the morning or it's like at 11 o'clock at night. So it's, it's always 11 o'clock at night for yeah, me. And I'm like, if I tweet this, nobody will read it. So I'm safe. <laughs> <We're on ranting laughs> time. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I, yes, absolutely. I was going to say, uh, I mean, I think I feel like all the things that I was feeling ranty about, I feel like we already talked about. So it was good. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. And I well, learned a bunch from Asia too. This has been great. I learned a lot. So surf. <laughs> I'm going to check my surf I'm stuff. Go check out payback periods. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please tell someone about it.